So now this evening we come to the book of Daniel. And with Daniel we come to the last of the three preparatory ministries for recovery in the Old Testament. We've said such a lot about these preparatory, this preparatory ministry, this threefold preparatory ministry toward recovery and restoration. And now we have commenced on its last and final stage. <clears throat> and Daniel is not only the last of the three great preparatory ministries in the Old Testament, he is also the last of the major, what we call the major prophets. And he is the fifth book in our prophetical division of the Old Testament. In the Hebrew arrangement, however, he was not found, or it was not found, amongst the prophets at all. But it was found in the third division of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, under the, in the Hebrew uh, arrangement, in the writings, or sometimes called the Psalms, for as a title for the whole division. It was found there between Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. And the reason the uh, saints in the Old Covenant put it in that place, in the Hebrew canon, was that they felt that Daniel was technically not a prophet, which is a very interesting point. And that the book itself, technically, technically, is not prophecy. It's narrower than prophecy. They felt that Daniel himself was a statesman. And therefore, because he was a statesman, they did not feel free to put him amongst the prophets. There is actually a further reason for it. They also felt, rightly, that the book was not prophetic, but apocalyptic. And the difference between prophecy and an apocalypse is simply that apocalyptic literature is prediction in figure by the means of figure and symbol. Now, prophecy, you know, is not just mere prediction. It is not just merely foretelling what's going to happen in the future. Prophecy can be all to do with the past, interpreting events that are past. And it can also be uh, interpreting and explaining um, uh, events of the present. It can also be to do, and often is, with the future. But when we talk of apocalyptic literature, such as the book of Revelation, we are generally speaking of that which is holy in the future. And uh, the Jewish rabbis have felt that the book of Daniel was pure, purely apocalyptic literature. And therefore they put it in the third division of the uh, scriptures. They said, and rightly I think, that Daniel's ministry... Daniel's function was primarily as a statesman who was a testimony and a witness to the Most High God. 
in a heathen empire. That was his primary function in, uh, as they saw it. And his ministry was uh, essentially a prayer ministry. We shall look a good deal more into that later. The book of Daniel is a remarkable book in every way. I don't know if you have read it. But I suppose that as children, whereas we do not know hardly anything about the other prophets, we do know a little about the book of Daniel. Those are the stories that usually we are told from Sunday school days. And therefore to us, the book of Daniel is something that most of us have some little knowledge about. It's a remarkable book. It is remarkable because it is a vivid book. It's a dramatic book. It has a gripping style. Its whole story, whether it is uh, in its prophecy or whether it is only in its narrative, and it is divided into two, uh, we find that everything about this little book of uh, Daniel is gripping. It's not only gripping, it's somewhat startling. For no other prophet um, drew the pictures quite that uh, Daniel drew. When he depicted nations for us uh, under the figure of beasts and many other things. His whole style is both startling, vivid and gripping. Due to its amazingly detailed uh, predictions of the future, really startling in their minuteness, uh, this book has always been the hotbed of controversy. And not only controversy, because due to its prediction, so much uh, prediction within it, and the numbers particularly, he is the first prophet to actually uh, give us predict certain lengths of time until certain events in history would take place. Um, because of his numbers and of the uh, figures and symbols that he uses, uh, it has held a fascination, a natural, a natural fascination for many people, which in many cases has led to um, fantasy and error. Uh, there are many differing systems of, pro of prophecy which are based upon the book of Daniel. Uh, oh, all kinds of things. You've got to go upstairs and look in the library and you'll find even there quite a number of widely differing uh, uh, schools of thought that have all uh, been based upon uh, the uh, book of Daniel. And yet, and this is the point, we must not allow that to prejudice us in our approach to this book. There are many people who will not approach Daniel with an open mind. Uh, their mind has already been biased and prejudiced by some of the fantastic claims, perhaps, that have been uh, supposedly based and founded uh, in, in this book. We must remember that Daniel claims in his visions to give us what no other prophet has given us. He claims to give us the course of world history 
from the time of Babylon right down to the end of world history. You see, most of the other prophets confine themselves almost exclusively to the spiritual side of things, to God's dealings with his chosen people, to spiritual principles. But Daniel does not. Instead, he claims, he claims to give us the course of world history, or shall I put it this way, Gentile history, to the end of uh, the human story. Every one of Daniel's visions end with the little phrase, the time of the end, or the end. That's where they leave us, every one of them. They begin, for the most part, with where he stood and in the times in which he stood, and they traverse the whole centuries of time and end at the end of it all. Now, that's most important, for, you see, uh, Daniel not only claims in his visions to give us the course of world or Gentile history, but he gives it to us with the Messiah as the focal point of world history. It's as if God has chosen for this function and task a man who lived at the very heart of uh, the Gentile world. I want to say, if we can get to it this evening, something about the city of Babylon tonight, something about what it was like to live there. Uh, and I think it will surprise some, possibly. The point was that the Lord took Daniel and not only put him into a Gentile atmosphere and into what was then the great nerve center of the Gentile world, but he made him an integral part of the whole thing and raised him to the most exalted position that it was possible to give him uh, in their system. And then to this man, verse, not only in understanding of the ways of God and in God's dealings with his people and the history of God's chosen people, but also versed in Gentile things. To this man, God gave these visions that were to define and depict the course, uh, broadly speaking, uh, of world history. We must not forget that he tells us, Daniel tells us, that with Nebuchadnezzar, the great turning point in the divine program had been reached. And he tells us in one, one of the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, which he interprets, that Nebuchadnezzar has ushered in what Daniel calls the times of the Gentiles. Now, some of you may, that may not make much of an impact, but the whole point is this. We're still in the times of the Gentiles. We're still in it. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he had ushered it in. The age of the supremacy of God's people as being the sort of touchstone and everything had passed. It had now gone over into the Gentile world. And we are still there. Still in that stream of history, what, what we call the times 
of the, of the Gentiles. Even the Lord Jesus referred to the times of the Gentiles in relation to the end when they said, when, what would the sign be of his coming and of the end of all things? He spoke of the times of the Gentiles. And you see, my point is this, that uh, Daniel is dealing with this terrific portion of history, the times of the Gentiles. And as I have said today, we are still within that era. That era was ushered in with Nebuchadnezzar, and we are still within it. There are some, of course, who believe it ended in 1917. But there are others amongst us who are not quite so certain that it ended in 1917. It was then the Jewish national home was set up again in, uh, in Palestine, and some people believe that uh, uh, the times of the Gentiles has ended. If so, there's something gone wrong uh, with the numbering, because there's only a very, very little time left from the end of the times of the Gentiles, I believe just seven years from the end of the times of the Gentiles to the coming of the Messiah for the final time. Well, <clears throat> That's something of uh, Daniel's vision and understanding. And indeed, it's just because of the times in which we live that we ought to pay the more especial attention to the book of Daniel. For along with the book of Revelation, it is the, one of the only two books of the Bible in which it is expressly stated that it is for no other time but for the time of the end. And if you will look at Daniel chapter 12, <clears throat> and verse 4, you will read this. And this is something like 2,500 years ago. But thou, o Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Verse 9. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, just so that you might see that this is what I say is true. Will you look at chapter 8, verse 26? And you will find here a vision that is to do with the Persian and the Greek empires. It, we are given the interpretation of the dream, so we're not just foisting that interpretation upon it. We are given the interpretation of it. And it is all to do with the... Uh, the, firstly, the uh, Persian Empire and then the Greek, em Greek Empire. Now, in, in verse 26 of chapter 8, it says, And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which had been told is true, but shut thou up the vision, for it belongs to many days to come. Not the end, but for many days to come. So you will see that where Daniel is given something which is not for the absolute end, he is clearly told. But generally speaking, the book is for the time of the end. It's sealed until the time of the end. Therefore, we should take the more especial note 
of the book of Daniel, not in um, a fearful way, not in a foolish and excessive way, but just simply on the grounds that we must now be nearer the end than either Daniel or the New Testament church. Then we must say this, that Daniel is a book of great conflict throughout. Both its narrative and its prophetic part is filled with, co with conflict. And it's a conflict between false gods on the one side and the most high God or the living God, as Daniel calls him. On the one side, he's in, he is now at the heart, the metropolis of an empire which has all these false gods. On the other side, you have Daniel with a little handful who stand absolutely uncompromised, representing the living God. On the one side, you have this tremendous conflict built up with a false kingdom, an essentially false kingdom. And in Scripture, Babylon is the very symbol of this world. It is the great figure of this world, essentially false. On the other side, you have what is called the everlasting kingdom, represented in Daniel and the others. On the one side, you have evil men. Oh, and these men who have left their mark in history were nevertheless, some of them, evil men, not thinking twice of the slaughter of many innocent people. On the one side, you have evil men. And on the other side, you have the saints of God. Another term which is very characteristic of Daniel, saints. He always used that lovely word for God's people, the saints of the Most High. Always you've got this conflict. And it is a conflict which seems at times to be overwhelmingly in favor of the false. A conflict which seems to be overwhelmingly in favor of the evil. Overwhelming in its evil, in its power, uh, in its uh, viciousness. And yet this is the point. At every single point where it would seem that the... Uh, power of the enemy is absolutely overwhelming, you find God's children come out on top. There's not a single instance in the whole book of Daniel where they go under. And believe me, the situations into which they are placed are absolutely impossible. I'm not saying that, that in an exaggerated way. You've only got to read the book, which at times many people find hard. To, to just accept <clears throat> furnaces that are heated seven times more than they are wont to be heated, beasts that are kept without food for days, and so on, these kind of situations which are just allowing the enemy to go to the extent of his leash, of his chain, to do everything which he possibly can to smash and break and destroy uh, any testimony to the living and to the Most High God. But every single time, the conflict 
always leads finally to the establishment of the throne of God, of the, of the kingdom of God, and the triumph of his saints. Uh, it's a wonderful book just from that angle. Because every time the enemy comes out in all his power to pulverize the saints of the Lord, then every time the Lord just lets him have his way, stands back, doesn't do anything for his people, lets them just, as it were, be at the mercy of the enemy, and then when he's done his absolute worst, the Lord steps in, delivers them, and puts them in a position where they could never have been if it hadn't been for the enemy. The enemy has pushed them up the scale. He's pushed them up the ladder. They come out every single time with increase. Of course, that's one of the reasons why critics find it so hard to believe in the uh, genuineness of the book of Daniel. They say that it's just like a fairy story. Every time anything happens to Daniel, he gets promoted. Every time anything goes wrong, he goes up the ladder of promotion. <laughs> so that at the end of the book, he's at the highest point that he possibly could be. Well, that's the book of Daniel. It's a, it, it's a book of conflict, but it always ends in the establishment of God's throne and purpose and kingdom and the triumph of his <coughs> sins. And that's why I think we will find it a very thrilling book. We ought also to note the difference between Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, for the three are quite different. Jeremiah, not at all chronological, not at all orderly, Revealing the man himself more than anything else. Ezekiel, systematic and exhaustive, orderly, chronologically arranged within subject. Such a different kind of man, temperament and book altogether. With hardly any personally revealing uh, statements at all. The outstanding thing is the ministry from beginning to end in the book of Ezekiel. And when you come to Daniel, how can we describe Daniel? He's not like Jeremiah, he's not like Ezekiel. If anything, he seems to be a combination of the two. He seems to combine the best points of both. His ministry, when he ministers, when he gives us a vision, when he gives us the interpretation, he couldn't be more clear, he couldn't be more orderly, he couldn't be more detailed. And yet, on the other side, you wait until we come to listen to Daniel at prayer. There is no finer or more moving prayer in the whole Old Testament than the prayer of Daniel in, ch in chapter 9. When he pours out his heart, what a depth there is of feeling, what fervency, what sympathy, what identification with the people in their sin and in their need. What importunate prayer. It's very hard to describe Daniel because although he tells us quite a lot about the events of his life, he doesn't in actual fact reveal very much about himself. And in a few moments we shall discover that we have very few facts about his home life or ancestry or anything like that. Then again, it's very interesting to note the difference 
in the accent that there is in their ministry, in the ministry of the word in these three men. You know, in Jeremiah, the accent was undoubtedly on judgment. The heavy, somber notes of judgment sound very loud in the ministry of Jeremiah. In Ezekiel, you'll remember, there is a transition from judgment to restoration. And yet there's still those somber, heavy notes of judgment, but they are tempered with the notes of reconciliation, coming reconciliation and restoration. But you know with Daniel, there is not anywhere in the whole book so much as a single word of judgment uttered upon the people of God. It's as if now it's all behind. And I think that's a, a touching evidence of the grace of God. You see, with Jeremiah it was coming. And the Lord was not going to let his people get away with it. It was going to be clearly uh, defined to them. And with Ezekiel, the Lord, although he was going to speak about reconciliation and restoration, was still not going to let them get away. They were going to learn the lesson. Ezekiel was going to define things, the causes, the root, and so on. But now the Lord turns his back on it altogether. It's not as much as mentioned. Although there's, of course, the talk of judgment of the nations but there's no talk of the judgment of his people. Instead, Daniel is all taken up with the Messiah, the coming Messiah, as the focal point of God's purpose, and how all the Gentile nations are related to it, and with all their evil, and cruelty, and wickedness. Yet behind it all, there's the Most High God, working out his, his counsel according to his own will, and in the end, everything's going to be on time. Everything's going to be on schedule. Nothing's going to be behind. According to Daniel, he can even give us the times uh, to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, he can put it down for so many years. Hence, the Messiah will come. Uh, Daniel then is taken up with that, and that is the urgency in his testimony and in his prayer ministry. You see, Daniel saw so much. Daniel understood so much, but he wasn't a crystal gazer. He wasn't just a visionary, as some people, I'm afraid, are, all wrapped up with the theory and the doctrine and the teaching of the thing. Daniel the, what Daniel saw and what Daniel understood in the books was translated into, a, into such a sense of urgency in testimony. Daniel was absolutely uncompromising when he could have saved his skin, so to put it, many a time by just, just a little bit of compromise. After all, you don't need to make a great show of your prayer, do you? Just shut the windows. No one will know. Inside. But no, no, Daniel's not going to do that. He's going to open his windows. And everyone knows that he's up where, just as he's always been. He's not going to compromise. Not one digit. But you see, there's a sense of urgency in Daniel's testimony. He knows, he's seen something. He realizes something's coming. And he's going to be uncompromising in his testimony and witness to the Most High God and to the Kingdom of the Living God, which he sees to be the only lasting thing in a transient scene. And then again, uh, Daniel's prayer ministry, uh, there's a sense of urgency in that, which I'm afraid is not in all of us. 
uh, he sees what's happening, he understands what's happening, and when he sees and understands, he gets on his knees and prays and prays and prays and prays the people of God into the right position. He prays them back into the purpose of God. He prays them into the land. It's an amazing thing, the way in which Everything the Lord said to Daniel, everything the Lord did with Daniel, became ground for Daniel's test life of testimony and his life of prayer. I wish that could happen with us. What a difference it would make if what we see and what we hear were to become the ground of an uncompromising testimony and an uncompromising prayer life. Well, that's Daniel. The Lord Jesus quoted Daniel and based some of his sayings upon uh, the book of Daniel uh, a number of times. Whilst the book of Revelation will never be understood apart from an understanding of this book. Are you all too hot? I wonder whether you could turn that fire off. It's been heating up a bit too much. Um... Now, just a few um, things about authorship and, and date. Um, perhaps we should spend just a little bit longer here than usual because the book of Daniel has been so assailed. Daniel is divided clearly into two, into two parts. From Daniel 1 to 6, we have a historical narrative. Of course, there is a certain amount of prophecy there, an understanding of dreams and so on. But on the whole, it's narrative. From Daniel chapter 7 to chapter 12, it is prophecy or apocalyptic. From chapter 1 to chapter 6, it's in the third person. From chapter 7 to chapter 12, it's in the first person, which is very interesting. Then there is another point about the book of Daniel. It's written in Hebrew from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, and then from chapter 8, verse 1, to the end. But from chapter 2 and verse 4, right through to the end of chapter 7, it is in Chaldee or Syriac. It claims to be the work of Daniel. Daniel... If you just look, Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. I just take one or two instances at random. In the third year of the reign of King, Belsh of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Then chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. And then if you look at chapter 1 and verse 6, which we read this evening, you will find that it records the fact that Daniel was brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. It claims to be the work of Daniel. Although Daniel 1 to 6 is in the third person, all scholars agree on the unity of the book. And that's an interesting point. There's no scholar, actually, who has suggested 
uh, no scholar of, of repute who has suggested that the first six chapters uh, might be the work of someone else. Nearly everyone does actually agree that, it, that the uh, authorship of this book is uh, the, work, it's the work of one man. Uh, the use of the third person is not unusual in the Bible, as I think most of you know. We have many instances of it, of it being used, and indeed it was not uh, unusual in the ancient East. But nevertheless, on the whole, because of its character, Daniel has always caused comment. Although with some exceptions, most have agreed until comparatively recently, until about the 19th century in particular. Um, most have agreed upon the authorship of Daniel. And it must be said that if it were not for the supernatural element in the book of Daniel, which is so obvious, so um, patent, both in the narrative section and in the prophetic section, many of the objections that have been raised to the authorship of Daniel and to the genuineness of the book would never have been raised in the first place. Now, let us make no mistake about this. The real strength of the assault on the book of Daniel is the question as to whether it is possible for a man to predict the future. That is the uh, force that lies behind the charge that the book of Daniel is a forgery. Um, it, of course, has become, as I've said, the hotbed of controversy. Uh, there are many learned gentlemen who would uh, die rather than say that uh, any man could predict the future. Uh, to many, it is out of the realm of possibility. They can predict the future like Isaiah did in the most general terms, so that in some ways it could almost be a coincidence or you could actually apply many cases of history to uh, these general terms. But for a man to actually say that in so many years the Messiah would come, the cutting off of the Messiah from the land would be in so many years from his time, and for it to take place was, uh, to, to many of them, uh, an unthinkable proposition. Uh, that is the strength of the argument uh, against Daniel. It is in its supernatural element. Not only, of course, had they got a headache over the lion's den and the fiery furnace, but they have a bigger headache over the taking away of the oblation and the abomination of desolation and the 70 times 7 and those uh, predictions of uh, Daniel, that he should have painted for us, not in just broad terms, but almost in de detailed way, the course of world history from Babylon through the Medo-Persian Empire, through the Greek period, down to the Roman period, was too much for many scholars to stomach. Thus, you will find that very few will accept the authorship or, if for that matter, the genuineness of the book 
of Daniel. It's therefore maintained by some with all honor that Daniel is an assumed name and that it was written by an unknown Jew of the second century who wrote of past history as if he were predicting it. Um, in the name of God and in the name of Daniel, he evidently wrote up the history of the preceding 200 or 300 years as if it was all a prediction. That is the studied conclusion of a large amount of scholarship upon the book of Daniel. The arguments against Daniel's author authorship can be summed up in three. The first is the fabulous content of the narrative. I'm quoting. The fabulous content of the narrative. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar's madness, we have absolutely no record, so they said, of it in contemporary history. Belshazzar, they said some hundred years ago, uh, never existed and was a fictitious character by, uh, out of the mind of this unknown Jew of the second century. Daniel could never have been received as the head of the Babylonian uh, priesthood or magical caste. Uh, they said that would be absolutely impossible. And then as for the fiery furnace, uh, they found that a little bit too hard to believe, and also the lion's den. But the interesting fact is now, things have come to light, if some of you want to look at it, there are books upstairs that you can look at, even Werner Keller's, The Bible is True, uh, will help you a lot in this. Um, there are many things that have come to light now, which ha I'm afraid have gone counter to so much recent scholarship. Uh, Belshazzar, for instance, has been discovered to be a person. Nebuchadnezzar's madness, uh, there are some hints of it. And even so, it's been pointed out now by a number of scholars that even if it's, we haven't got any temporary record of it, doesn't mean to say that he didn't go mad for a while, especially when we know a little bit about the way records were kept, uh, about defeats and other such things. Some people take, uh, think that the way the Bible records history was necessarily the way that other oriental courts and kingdoms uh, recorded history. It is not always so. Then again, uh, we have discovered that Daniel uh, may well have been received as the head over the whole priesthood or magical caste, magicians, whatever you like to call them, wise men, astrologers, uh, of Babylon in a political way. It is quite possible without compromising him in any way, shape, or form. And then again, one of the most interesting facts is this, that the fiery furnace is absolutely in keeping with the way that Babylon uh, would have destroyed some of its not-so-wanted uh, or desirable uh, characters. Whereas the uh, Persians were absolutely against 
any form of uh, death or corruption uh, being brought into contact with fire. For them, fire was the symbol of the presence of God. They were Zoroastrians. And even to this day, Parsis leave their, the bodies of their dear ones to be uh, eaten by animals or by the birds of the air. Uh, they will not burn them, neither will they bury them. And they are, of course, the present-day um, successors of Zoroastrianism. So uh, it is absolutely in keeping that uh, Daniel should be put in a lion's den. For the, to them, that was quite so. People said, if there was a fiery furnace, which was evidently all ready for execution, state executions and the like, why on earth did they suddenly change over to lions? It seems a little bit peculiar, said the scholars of some years ago. But now, as further and more extensive research is made, more and more things come to light which confirm the record of Daniel rather than reject it. The second argument against Daniel's authorship, and I give it in full because I think it's very important, is that the detailed, minute prophecies of the future cannot possibly um, uh, be genuine. They are, in actual fact, the write-ups of preceding history as if it was being predicted. I'm not even going to attempt to answer that. I think it's so silly. If anyone knows God in any shape or form, obviously if there is a God, he can predict the future, which he knows very much better than any of us. Thirdly, and this is a quite serious argument, the language in which the book is written is corrupt Hebrew and Chaldee with an amount of Greek words. Um, the first two arguments were not so serious, but the last is, and I think we should note just these few things. It is because of the language that most scholarship has finally come to rest uh, on their, their feelings about the authorship of Daniel. Um, the interesting thing is this. If this book of Daniel was the product of an unknown Jew of the second century, he would never have written in Chaldee. Because he would then have known, the canon being in formation, he would have known that Chaldee would have ruled it out on the whole. Hebrew was the sacred language. And at that late date, nothing in, in Syriac would have been uh, accepted, especially as by that time there was the growth of the Samaritans who believed that the Chaldee and the Syriac was the sacred language and not the Hebrew. And that's an important point. Secondly, it fits perfectly with Daniel as a character and as a man. He was bilingual. In his teens, he was brought to Babylon, not only versed in Hebrew, but it is expressly told he was taught Chaldee. So it seems to me quite clear that uh, that fits Daniel then the corruptness could be due to Persian influence because um, of the great transition. There was a certain amount of corruption in the Hebrew, but that could be due to the influence of Persian uh, things, customs and words. And then the question of Greek words is a very simple one indeed. There are only 12 Greek, Greek words used in 14 chapters of Daniel, which have caused all the trouble. Um, but these 
so-called uses of Greek words, uh, according to critics, prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that it belongs to the second century. That's why I just have mentioned it at length. When it's all boiled down, uh, it comes to four words, which we can say could be proved to be of Greek origin. And all four words are the names of musical so it does seem that the arguments against the genuineness of Daniel and the authorship of Daniel, Daniel do, in actual fact, rest on somewhat slender uh, on a somewhat slender basis. On the whole, and this is an encouraging thing, critics are now on the retreat because of the archaeological researches and linguistic researches. They are retreating more and more from the position. And as one conservative scholar has dryly said, each few years they put the date of Daniel back 50. <laughs> so we are very encouraged to at least see that there is something to be said for this, for Daniel's authorship. It would therefore seem that there is not really sufficient evidence to put aside the authorship of Daniel in spite of the difficulties. And indeed, and here is an important point, the trustworthiness of Daniel depends, not like so many other books of the Old Testament, where it doesn't matter what their date is, the trustworthiness of Daniel depends upon its date. If we can establish that it belongs to the second century and that it's not prediction at all, then the whole basis of Daniel's uh, ministry collapses. Uh, that, I believe, is an important point. We must also note that Daniel claims that the content, the order, and the extent of what we call the book of Daniel was given to him by revelation. He says, not in chapter 6, so that we could all say, oh, well then, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, which are some very difficult chapters, uh, don't belong to this. He says in chapter 12, that the Lord said to him by the angel, seal up the book till the time of the end. It was obvious, the way the Lord said it, seal up, that Daniel had a certain number of manuscripts that were in the compiling. And this was the final word of the Lord. Seal it up, Daniel. Seal up this book. Put it away uh, for the time of the end. I think that's an important point. And so I think we can, uh, upon those grounds, uh, say that there's a good, a good deal more to be said for the authorship of Daniel and many more um, troubles overcome by accepting it than by rejecting it. And if we accept the authorship of Daniel, then the dating of the book of Daniel is in the uh, proximate period of 530 BC. Now, a few words before we end this evening about the background of Daniel. 
Can we learn anything about Daniel? Is there anything that we can discover about the uh, background of this man? <clears throat> the name Daniel means God my judge or <clears throat> judge of God. Both names with a slightly different emphasis and aspect are very indicative of Daniel's place and position and ministry. He was born, as far as we can make out, in the reign of Josiah. It's very interesting, isn't it, to find the different men who were born in the reign of that good man. He was born in days of spiritual revival, when the law was found, and when there was a tremendous uh, excitement everywhere about what the law said. That's interesting. We know little of his ancestry, if anything, except that he was either of royal blood or noble blood but he was one or, or, or other. We are told that Nebuchadnezzar took of the royal seed and of noble blood. So it is quite possible that Daniel had royal blood in his veins. He was taken to Babylon in the first stage of captivity, eight years before Ezekiel, when only a teenager. We don't know how old he was, but we do know he was a youth. He was either in his early teens, or he may have been in his late teens, but he was a teenager. I want you to, learn, to take note of these facts. They're important. Because some of us moan and groan about our circumstances, about our temptations, and the whole current of this world. But I would like to know what we would have done uh, in the place of Daniel. He was a teenager. He was torn away from his home. We don't know anything about his background. They, his mother and father may have been captives, but he certainly would have been taken right away from them. He had, was able to have no or very little contact with his relatives at all. He was now severed, severed, his connection severed with his land and uh, for the most part with his people. He was put into the palace which was an enormous place, into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, into the royal palace, to be educated and to be trained. His whole adult life was spent in Babylon. And that means over 69 years, 70 years almost, was spent in Babylon. Uh, if you read Daniel 1 and verse 1 and compare it with Daniel 1 and verse 21, you can work out, the, if you know anything about the contemporary history, you can work out the 69 years. That means that Daniel must have reached the age of at least 90 before he died. He lived a long life, a, troubled li a life in troubled times and a life that from beginning to end was the centre of conflict and opposition. His life took him through the reigns of at least six men, two of whom were outstanding in world history, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Uh, and through the transition, the great transition from the Babylonian Empire, which faded out in the, in the life of um, Daniel after 2,000 years, faded out to be taken place by, uh, its place to be taken by the Persian Empire. Daniel undoubtedly uh, became 
an outstandingly gifted and great statesman. Uh, the fact that he arose, and please do get it out of your mind that we're dealing with sub-civilized people and a sub-civilized uh, atmosphere. When we are dealing with Babylon, we're dealing with something on par, for the most part, with life and civilization as we know it today without the technical inventions and advances um, of uh, the period in which we live. But do get it out of your mind that we're dealing with something that was uh, just near to wandering Bedouins and so on, as some people used to think some hundreds of years ago. Daniel was, became, in that atmosphere, surely not only by the grace of God, but by also inherent gift within, um, became an outstanding statesman uh, of the period. I think, too, that we must not only note that it was the policy of Nebuchadnezzar, and a very wise policy, because he was a rather broad-minded man in some ways, an autocrat. He could have his whole priesthood slain because they couldn't find the interpretation of a dream. He was an autocrat in that way, and he didn't think much about human life, especially if it annoyed him. But um, nevertheless, he was a very broad man, as men go in the, from those days, and his policy was, the policy of his government and administration was, take selected youths of royal blood from the captive peoples and train them and educate them, separate them, separate them from their relatives and background and everything, and then educate them and train them and make them Babylonians. Then put them into the... Um, what corresponded to our foreign office and let them deal with their own people. That was his policy. And of course, these four, uh, Daniel and his three friends, were selected uh, to be educated and trained in the kings, in the royal palace, for this very task. We must remember that when Daniel was brought to the palace, when he was brought to to Babylon, he found himself in the metropolis of the world. And he found himself in an unbelievable atmosphere of looseness, of luxury, of, uh, what shall we say, of activity, of um, cruelty, and of autocracy. And it was there, in such conditions, so evil and contrary, that we could hardly um, find uh, such conditions, to equal them, anywhere. That God raised Daniel to the most exalted position in that heathen system that it was possible to give him. Now, that is the most remarkable fact in the book of Daniel. The Lord brought one of his own right into the very heart of the world. The place that has become the symbol of all that stands for Antichrist and all that is against God <clears throat> and of this world evil. And into it, 
he put and planted four of his own. And then, because of their uncompromising attitude to himself and their devotion to him, he took them step by step, using the very means meant to exterminate them, to further them, so that finally they're at the top. Well, that should be of great encouragement to us when we pray for brothers and sisters in communist countries, because you needn't be the least bit afraid the same thing can happen. You may or you may not know the latest news about our brother Lee, that he has now been taken out of a cell and given a room for his own and is now translating uh, scientific books from English into Chinese. So God has his own ways of raising people from one place to another place and using the very things that are meant to destroy them to further them, to increase them and to exalt them so long as they're faithful and uncompromising. God is no man's debtor. Those that honour God, God honours. But I want to ask a question. What was this Babylon like? If Daniel could come to the highest position that it could offer, what was it like? Well, now I've got to risk be, I've got to be very careful. But at the risk of being um, uh, told off, I'm going to quote to you an account of Herodotus. Of course, I think Herodotus exaggerated. Uh, but if we cut down what Herodotus says by 50%, I think we're near the truth. The one thing we must remember is this, that he visited Babylon shortly after Daniel had gone. What does he say? The empire was at its greatest under Nebuchadnezzar. It was the 10th dynasty of Babylon. It stretched over 2,000 years. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of its greatest and most famous men, the second in the 10th dynasty. He was the one who was known not so much for his great warlike exploits, and he was a great soldier, but for being a tremendous restorer and rebuilder. Herodotus gives us these facts. He says, and I'm just literally quoting facts from him. The city itself was a vast square divided by the Euphrates. Sixty miles in circumference. Fifteen miles across. With walls 350 feet high. One hundred brass gates. A, a city filled, he says, with parks and gardens. The city centre filled with two or three storied buildings. All the streets were at right angles and all broad enough for two, two chariots to cross, to pass. Many canals connected to the Euphrates and were filled with river traffic. The palace had a circuit of seven miles. The Temple of Bel, that which we believe to be originally in the old town of Babel, rose to 600. Now, that is an exaggeration. Archaeologists today believe that it rose to 300 feet. But even certainly that's almost the height of St. Paul's. There were 53 temples, 55 chapels of Marduk, 300 chapels of earthly deities, 600 of heavenly deities. It had, said Herodotus, a population of a million. 
Well, even if that's an exaggerated account, and it well, may well be, it is nevertheless, it goes to show one thing, that it was no mean city. There was something about Babylon which startled and amazed everyone that saw it. The uh, discoveries of archaeologists have confirmed beyond any shadow of a doubt that the layout of Babylon was like uh, uh, an American city with its broad avenues and everything at right angles and its square buildings and everything else. And all, comparatively speaking, on a gigantic scale. The thing was colossal. And uh, I think we've just got to uh, remember that. When Babylon gave way to Persia, the Babylonian Empire became the Medo-Persian Empire, the capital remained more or less the same, much of it remained the same, although politically and religiously it changed a great deal. For the Persians did not believe in idols, they, didn't, they abhorred idolatry, they were an Aryan race, whereas the Babylonians were a Semitic race. And the Persians uh, were very much more favorable toward the Jews because there seemed to be a likeness and a kinship in what they believed. Politically also there was a great difference, because in the Babylonian system it was autocratic, and although it didn't change a lot, under the Persian system it was aristocratic government. It was government uh, that was the powers of the king were, were limited by the princes and presidents. Whereas in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, there was no such limitation or restriction whatsoever. He was a pure dictator. So there's a little bit about Babylon that might at least interest some of you. I was going to read some of Werner Keller uh, upon what he, uh, how he re would reconstruct Babylon. I think it would surprise many of you, because you would think, if I didn't say anything, that he was almost describing some modern 20th century city with all its uh, overhanging gardens and parks and suburbs and the exchange and the shops and the colour and the parades and everything else. You, it was a, a centre of activity and colour and commerce and administration. The whole empire that stretched all that green was its domain. Tremendous uh, area. Well... It's that which has become the scriptural symbol of this world. I have not said anything about the life of Babylon, but I would prefer, because it's not very nice, if you would like uh, to read it in some of the books upstairs. Just suffice it to say that it was an impure and very loose atmosphere. It shocked even Herodotus. Uh, when he went there, some of the things that he saw and he discovered about the customs of Babylon. That's why it's called the Mother of Hearts. So, you see, this was the place that Daniel found himself in. And he didn't just find himself on the fringes or in the suburbs of Babylon. He found himself at the heart of it, in the palace. Furthermore, he found himself trapped, trapped on a three-year course to become an official of the government of this heathen system. Now, you know, you can't argue with a man like Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Daniel was, uh, had been selected. He hadn't been asked whether he'd like to go on the course. He'd been selected and put on the course. And 
it's all right, I've not got much more to say. Uh, Daniel was now with the three other friends on a three-year course, which if he proved to be uh, acceptable, he would be received and accepted into government and public <coughs> service. This was the atmosphere Daniel found himself in. He was trapped. He was at the heart of it. Now, please remember, he was a teenager. He had no mother's influence, he had no father's influence, he had no uncles and aunts that bore great influence, he had no rabbis that were near him, or any other teacher that could in any way have any effect or influence upon the youthful Daniel or his three friends. They were cut off. I have no doubt about it at all that there were many other noble young Jews who were with him, and they chose another course of action. But these four boys, and they were they were lads. We don't know exactly where they learnt it or how they learnt it. But when it came to breaking the law of Moses, for which their nation had been so terribly punished, they stood up to the whole might of Babylon. Now then, now then, just to eat a little bit of food with a little bit of blood in it, It's a bit silly, isn't it? And all the other Jewish lads are doing it? You know this is a big system, Daniel. You won't change the system. The system will change you.